0: conversations and complexity. Uh, my name is Ross Upcher, and I'm the uh, director of the Bridgepoint Collaboratory for Research and Innovation at the Sinai Health System where we're part of the Lunenfeld-Tannenbaum Research Institute. I'm also a professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine and in the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. This is the first of two podcasts examining issues related to medications, polypharmacy, deprescribing. In the first podcast, we're going to examine uh, some of the issues that arise in clinical practice, try to explain the phenomenon. In the second podcast, we will look at some proposed solutions to the problem. Today we're going to be talking about a very important issue with respect to health and a complex phenomenon in and of itself, that is medications. I was struck recently by an article in the New York Times uh, in the upshot by Austin Fracht called How Many Pills Are Too Many? And this is a great question. And when the New York Times is focusing on an issue in health, it tends to be now something that uh, educated readers and the general public starts to take seriously. But this is not a new issue. And in fact, when I was an undergraduate in medical school, I worked in the geriatric assessment unit and one of the things geriatricians were most concerned about in the early 80s was what they then called, and we still call, polypharmacy. That is, people being on too many medications. Now, in a straightforward way, it may make sense to say, well, you should be on only those medications that are necessary to achieve whatever health goal uh, it is you're seeking to achieve. and. It seems, in in principle, that it should be a simple matter to determine appropriate from inappropriate medications, medications that are actually doing uh, uh, important things for uh, people's health and ones that aren't. But in fact, the reason we call this part of the conversations and complexity is that medication usage, medication prescribing, and medication regimens themselves are complex. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the epidemiology and the clinical phenomenon of polypharmacy. And then I'm going to move to what I think are some suggestions about how we can address this issue from essentially the micro level at the level of the patient and the provider, the meso level at the level of the organization, and at the macro level in terms of uh, policy and uh, population strategies. Um, I think when you recognize the central role of medications that they play in an era of chronic disease, everyone will agree that this is an issue that requires our concerted attention. So about 10 years ago, uh, with colleagues, we started to look at uh, medication prescribing on a population level. We were particularly interested in the province of Ontario and also interested in the experience of seniors, that is people over the age of 65, because they're the ones who get their medications paid for by uh, the government through the Ontario Drug Benefit Program. We faced a fairly daunting task because the Ontario Drug Benefit Program pays for about over 4,000 medications. And the way they're organized in the databases is not along the lines of for what indication or what uh, purpose they're used clinically. So we're very fortunate that we had a brilliant research pharmacist by the name of Yana Lazar, who came and helped us organize that unruly list of uh, drugs to put them into cogent categories. So we were looking at the top 10 classes. What were the most commonly prescribed medications to older adults uh, in the province of Ontario? And we studied the years from 1997 to 2006, and we're fortunate now because in 2017, we'll be able to look at the uh, decade from uh, 2006 to 2016. And we found some very striking results. First, we found that the number of older Ontarians over the age of 65 who were on no medications went down from about 22% to 13%. So in 1997, about one in four older adults was on no medications, and that dropped to about uh, 13%, or almost one in 10. But what was striking was the shift in the number of unique medications prescribed, and we use this according to classes, and you can have more than one drug in one class. We found that the median number of unique medication classes shifted, so instead of it moved to about five classes. But at the far end of the tail, people who were on 10 or more than 10 uh, medication classes went up uh, several hundred percent. The other interesting thing we were able to study is the age and gender patterns, and these showed some striking uh, patterns as well. We found that on average, those in the youngest age group, the youngest old, 65 to 74, there was a slight increase in the number of medications that they were prescribed over that decade. In the middle youth of old age, I would call them, from 75 to 84, there was a slight increase, but really where the action was was in prescribing to men, and women in particular, over the age of 85. uh, In in 1997, for example, uh, an older woman over the age of 85 in Ontario received about 20 claims per person, and that went up to about 70 over this period of time. What was also striking, in this research was that the greatest gain in prescribing was for preventive medications, that is medications that managed risks. And when we summed up all of the medications and looked at them by indications, medications that focused on treating symptoms such as analgesics or treating conditions such as antibiotics were down as a relative proportion and preventive medications were up uh, quite substantially. And as we broke them down by agent, and we looked at them by particular classes of agents, we found that the same patterns held. The older you were, if you were female, you were more likely to be prescribed more medications than if you were a younger woman or as a man. So across the board, the oldest women were prescribed the most medication. This raised some very interesting questions for us, and we started to look in a little more detail about what might be driving this. So one is, it's not the case that all medications are ineffective. But when you're looking at the increase in preventive medications, it raises particular um, complicated issues. One is, if you're prescribing a medication to prevent something from happening, then the only way you know it works is nothing happens. And any effect you achieve or have from that medication is, by definition, an adverse effect. And if, for example, you have the event uh, that you're trying to prevent while you're on the medication, it's usually interpreted as uh, evidence of ineffectiveness of the dose and, as a consequence, you're actually prescribed more medications. So we were struck by, uh, by this phenomenon and we looked into this a little more. We thought that one of the driving forces behind medications might be clinical practice guidelines. So, remember, my goal here is not to cast aspersions on uh, clinicians prescribing medications for no good purpose, uh, because I don't think that's true. What has happened, as we discussed in the first podcast, is that as our population is aging, more and more people have what is called multimorbidity. And the chief way that we manage chronic diseases is through medical therapy. And this is borne out uh, by a very nice study that was done by uh, uh, colleagues in the United States, by Cynthia Boyd, and they produced this very interesting article where they talked about, uh, and they did a graphic of what it looks like to, for a person with five conditions who has, uh, they used a hypothetical woman who is 79 years old, She has high blood pressure, diabetes, her bones are getting a bit brittle, so she has osteoporosis, she's got arthritis in her joints, osteoarthritis, and she was a smoker, so she has chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And in a very succinct chart, they demonstrate all of the things that that person has to do to do optimal best practice care for their chronic conditions. And when you look at that chart, you say to yourself, oh my goodness, would I be able to follow that? Because when they wake up in the morning, they have to take medications. They have to take medications in the middle of the day. Some of the medications they take twice a day. Some of them they take four times a day. Some of the medications mean that they can't have a full stomach when they take the medications. Some of the medications interact with alcohol, so they're not permitted to drink. So, what you see out of this is an emerging picture of what we would call treatment burden. The other thing that we found of note was that if you look at the evidence base, and we'll probably have a podcast on evidence-based medicine, most of the clinical trials that give us the information on the safety and effectiveness of medications are done in younger populations, yet they're applied to older adults. And when uh, a group published a study in the Canadian Family Physician looking at the evidence supporting uh, the prescription of medications, they found that only 1.4% of studies enroll patients with an average age of 80. And that is an interesting point to think about. So there's important issues about whether you can apply Evidence from younger, carefully selected populations to older adults. But the other study that we did was we looked at the major clinical practice guidelines for the common chronic diseases. Uh, my joke with my patients when they'd come in used to be, "Well, what's your disease and what's your comorbidity today, Mrs. Jones?" And she'd kind of look at me quizzically and say, laugh and say, "Well, what do you mean, Dr. Upshur? I said, "Well, you know, you have eight chronic diseases, and on my shelf I have eight guidelines. And we, if we pull off any of the guidelines, they have an index disease. So there's a guideline for your high blood pressure. There's a guideline for your depression. There's a guideline for your osteoarthritis." There's There's a guideline for your diabetes, and that guideline is very, very much concerned with those individual diseases. Not so much concerned about your comorbidities, and even less concerned about where you are in your life course and your treatment uh, options. So what we found is for the most part, these guidelines were more or less uh, silent on uh, multimorbidity, uh, had only what I would call hand-waving towards uh, older adults. Now, I will point out that the most recent uh, Canadian Diabetes Association guidelines for uh, uh, treating diabetes has gone out of its way to have a particular chapter now that deals with older adults and uh, diabetes, which I think is welcome, and I think it's one of the directions that I will point out as we move along uh, in uh, in the future. So one of the interesting studies that came out this year talking about how you actually manage medications uh, in older people who are on multiple medications had a really great title. It was called Negotiating Unmeasurable Harm and Benefit. And this was a study that actually uh, interviewed uh, primary care physicians and pharmacists about how they go about taking people off medications or de-prescribing, And we'll come to deprescribing in more detail a little later. And this really, really highlights some of the key questions that we have to face. So there's fairly substantial uh, concerns, I think, for quality and safety of complex medication regimes. And what counts as a complex medication regime? Well we could. there is no clearly defined number of medications that one is on before one becomes Uh, has polypharmacy but I like to use the number five because I can always remember five factorial is 120. So assuming the body is an inert uh, uh, kind of vehicle there's 120 possible ways in which five medications can interact. The other thing is if you start to think about all the different systems that metabolize and break down uh, medications it's actually a larger number. And so, there's a great deal of uncertainty about how medications work in concert with each other, precisely because most studies are done to minimize the number of medications a patient is on. In real practice, if you go back to that original study that I mentioned, we know that the number of people who are on multiple classes of drugs has been growing over the past uh, 20 years. So we need to start to think about how we understand medications. And there's some really exciting work to be done in, one, what we call this phenomenon. Some people think calling it polypharmacy is a bit too judgmental. We might want to start and, and talking about deprescribing as a bit judgmental, that you're thinking that there's a negative connotation here. But if we use the principle of charity and argue that people are prescribed medications for a good purpose, Uh, Then the question becomes, how do we think about appropriateness of medication and its prescription, and how do we optimize medication regimes? And that's going to take some work. There's also some very interesting issues around adherence, and we've done some uh, qualitative work on people who are on complex medication regimes. So there was a very interesting study published in the New England Journal uh, some years back in which they talked about how the medication schedule is related to the rate of adherence and essentially the mean um, or the median uh, rate of compliance or adherence to medication regimen is about 50 percent if you have to take the medication four times a day and this was a study on single drug intake Um, so if you only have to take it once a day your adherence is better If you take it four times a day, adherence tends to fall. The other interesting insight they had is what they called the rule of sixes, in which they said, if you take the population of people taking medications, the range goes from about one-sixth of uh, patients come close to perfect adherence to a regimen, Uh, one-sixth take nearly all of them, but sometimes the timing's irregular, one-sixth miss an occasional single day's dose, One-sixth take drug holidays. Uh, Sometimes they tell their clinicians and sometimes they don't. They might take the drug holidays three to four times a year. Uh, Sometimes take uh, a drug holiday once a month. And one-sixth of patients will take uh, no medications and tell you that they're taking all of them. And this was really brought home in another recent study about what was called refractory hypertension. So they couldn't figure out why people on multiple classes of uh, high blood pressure medication weren't getting uh, appropriate levels of control. So they thought there might be some sort of interesting biological phenomenon underlying this, but when they looked a little closely at it, they found that uh, even though people were prescribed two or three classes of medication for their high blood pressure, the simple fact of the matter is they weren't taking the medication, and that's why their blood pressure remained high. So it used to be we talked about compliant patients and adherent patients, and there's kind of a normativity here that you're judging people when they're not taking medications as prescribed. And there has been a move to what's called concordance. In the United Kingdom they did a lot of work articulating concordance. And concordance is really about alignment of goals. And I think this is an important way to think as we go forward about how to manage medications. So concordance holds that it's kind of like a harm reduction strategy. You know that people don't take medications as prescribed. You know that when you prescribe them And you actually engage in a discussion with a person about what it means to be on a medication to manage a chronic condition. Because certain chronic, the, the, the interesting thing about chronic conditions is they're not cured, which means if you need medications to manage your chronic condition, you're going to have to take them every day and often for the rest of your life. So when you think about it that way, it's not surprising that people are not completely adherent. You need to work, find a way to work with people uh, to uh, make their treatment burden acceptable so that they have uh, a capacity to uh, live a life at a quality that they, they appreciate. So this idea of concordance, I think, is an important way forward because it really illustrates the overarching importance of communication and uh, therapeutic relationship in the management of chronic disease.